Thank you, Emily. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you again. Um, We had a little bit of a scare at the hotel last night. Somebody was burning incense candles, so they evacuated the hotel while the ladder truck came to the hotel. So uh, if I speak in tongues this morning or something, that's just... Just a joke, just to wake you up a little bit, that's all. Good morning, it's good to see you here. Uh, You know... um, I'm sure Brother Lee and Corey understand this, but you know, when you, when you get up to start to talk about something, you can kind of see how God has preceded things. And part of what the message is about today, it's entitled, The Love of God on Display, has already, I mean, Marty started us off this, started me off this morning. We were talking about it coming here, and, and then we talked about it in Brotherhood this morning. <clears throat> and it's about exactly what Emily just, <clears throat> excuse me, put to, put to music. What do we know about the holiness of God? You know, we are in Romans chapter 3. If you'd go ahead and find your way there. We're going to uh, try to conclude what we've been heading towards for the past couple of weeks. And I'll tell you that uh, the plan was... (laughs) is to show you the process to salvation. The first, that there's a righteous judge. That righteousness is dictated by his law. To bring you to the precipice, to bring you to the point that now we see the love of God. You know, it's one thing to convict somebody of their sin. But what do you do with that information? Do you just leave them there? Well, sometimes... You have to let people understand where they stand before a holy God. If you found your way to Romans chapter 3, I'd ask you to stand in the honor of reading God's word, please. We're going to be at Romans 3, verse 21 through 28. And Paul was writing and he says, But now, he's turning the corner in his logic, But now the righteousness of God, without the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, because there's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and He might be the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Well, by what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, you bring us to points in our life that we have to sometimes deal with where we stand in regard to your holy word. Father, I pray that you would help us and help me this morning just to slow down and to absorb what you have done for us. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that as we dive into your word this morning, that you would enable me to preach your word correctly, that you would enable the heroes to understand your word correctly, But beyond all of that, Father, that it would work out in our life to where not only ourselves specifically, but those around us would see how you have radically and supernaturally changed us into a new creation. God in heaven, I pray you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the most famous Bible verses that is there is John 3.16. 
And in that verse, it is the motive of God that propelled him to act. For God so loved that he gave. And in the law that he gave, the law works wrath. And we discovered last week that the law's design is that all the mouths of the world may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And the, that law brings us to a point at which we must then inwardly view ourselves in view of that righteous law and standard that God has for us. But when you stand guilty... You don't have to have anybody to tell you that there's a punishment that's coming because of the guilt, do you? You know that something needs to be reckoned because now something is, is out of joint, so to speak. And so there must needs be a price to be paid of some kind. So then comes in fear. Not, not fear of, um, of an omnipotent God, which He is, that has all power to do whatever in answer to no one, which he, he is in essence, but fearful because God is righteous in everything that He does. He's focused in everything He does. And in that righteousness, there is a justice. But surrounding it, encapsulating it, even, yea, protecting it, is the love of God. It's the governor that will not allow his wrath to break forth just capriciously and without control, but mete it out exactly and perfectly as if God were to inflict a wound on you, to teach you something, but not break you permanently but to wound you so that you would lean upon Him instead of upon your own self. And when that fear that is there, that holy reverential fear that we so wonderfully talked about this morning in Brotherhood, and thank you all guys that were there. That was great this morning. And uh, in the Iliad, in Homer's Iliad, Hector, who was... Uh, the Trojan was going out to fight Achilles and the Greeks. And he was all dressed up in his armor, bronze helmet and everything. And he wanted to embrace his son one last time because he didn't know if he'd ever see his son, and ultimately he wouldn't. But he didn't know if he would see his son ever again, so he went to embrace his son. And his son looked at the fearfulness of his armor and his battlements that were over his father. And his son ran away from him crying. So his father, Hector, took the helmet off and began to laugh and said, My son, it's me. And then his son embraced him because he saw behind the armor, behind the terror, behind the power that was there, was his father. And the same armor that gave him fear previously now showed no impediment to embracing his father. And such is the case with the law of God. That is exactly what Paul was trying to illustrate in our last time going through the righteousness of God versus the righteousness of man. God so brings us to a precipice with His law that it makes us understand that there is a righteous judgment that is on me. Not because... Jason or Lee or Corey, anybody made me do something. I chose to do this, whatever it was. And because I chose to violate that standard, and because I went in concert with my sinful nature, contrary to what God's Word says to do or not to do, therefore I can understand that when God says judgment is coming for that particular thing done, as done, Robbie, I cannot look around and say, you don't have a right to do this to me, God. But in that, His law has now revealed that God's actions are righteous and holy and, yea, even loving. 
the first characteristic that we see here of the love of God on display is the love of God is righteous. Look there at verse 21. But now, now notice Paul is talking at the present time, coming into New Testament time, the church has been founded at Pentecost. He now has had his visions of heaven. He now understands where all the law comes into play. And he's talking about it the present tense. Now, at this time, the righteousness of God without the law. That is a tremendous statement. Don't miss those three words. Without the law is revealed. Paul is talking to a Jew, and it is as if Paul is saying, everything you've been about, all these generations meant zero. It meant nothing. You have abused it, you've not used it, understood it properly, you've not understood its purpose. The law was never there for you to try to perform it to please God. That was never the purpose of it. It was never the intention of it. It was merely a system by which God could forbear with man until the Holy Son of God could appear and take away the sin of mankind permanently. It was never designed to remove sin. Paul would tell him, I mean, the, the writer of Hebrews would say, if the priest that offered it all the time, if it was a perfect sacrifice, it would have taken away the consciousness of sin. But in that sacrifice, it is a reminder, you're not there yet. You still owe, but God is forbearing. It's almost like being brought up to the to the very edge of your, your execution chamber, whatever device it would be, and saying, this is, this is what's for you. But it's going through the governor's office right now to see if you're going to be pardoned. But you're not going anywhere. It's like the children of Israel when they were right there by the Red Sea. It's like, you're not going anywhere. We're going to see what God's got to say about this thing. <laughs> that kind of make you think, won't it? And you know, the, th- the thing that we talked about this morning, and it's the, the very first part of this, is salvation is primarily focused on God. It's not about me. Now, now understand me, I'm not teaching you heresy. It's about the righteousness of God. I am secondary. Man is secondary. We are the recipients of this action that we call redemption and salvation. But it is focused on God. Now, and Paul's going to get to this, and I'm going to try to not outrun myself on this thing, but in Colossians 1.16, it says, All things are created by Him, speaking of Jesus, and for Him. Turn back, if you would, to uh, Psalms chapter 115. In Psalm 115, verse 1, it says... Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. For thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. He would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 21, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us then, secondarily, the ministry of reconciliation, or missions. For He hath made Him, God made Christ. God the Father made Christ sin for us, secondarily, who knew no sin, Christ knew no sin, that He might be made, that Christ might, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. But you see, the focus is on the righteousness of God. It's that He would be glorified. It says in Philippians that there's coming a day. Hallelujah. There's coming a day that every knee's going to bow. Every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the focus of redemption. That Jesus Christ would be glorified. Now I'm really trying to slow down in this. And I want you to understand something whether it's Hales Chapel Baptist Church, whether it's First Baptist Big City, USA, 
is the primary number one ulterior motive of your very existence to glorify God. Now everybody say, Amen, brother, you preach it. That's what we're about. We're about glorifying God. But I don't want to do it this way. Well, you can't put both of those in the same sentence. Either God is going to be Lord or He's not going to be. Either He's going to be the focus or He's not going to be. And when He is the focus, then you go into the background. Remember what John the Baptist said. He must increase. I must decrease. You know, it's, it's so easy, and it's so fleshly, and it's so natural to express your wants and desires, and that's okay. But it's when it gets to the point that it's an issue, that it has to be that way, you've got a spiritual malady that only a revival can cure. Because one of the things that is decimating churches is music style. That should never be an issue. That is an act of worship that is expressed from the very core of your spirit because of what Christ has done for you, pray tell. But people will split a church, they will shame the name of Christ over any little bitty issue that comes along because it's not their way. But we're told in commercial after commercial, you can have it your way. We're trained in America. You drive through and get the convenience you want. You put a fence around your house and we'll keep your little castle uh, quiet and clean from everything that's out in the world. But God says, I am righteous. This is about me. It's not about you. You know, we, we want to make Christianity so clean and palatable and, and easy to handle. And we want to take God and put Him in a box and don't want Him to break forth in any service where, you know, God, we don't want anything to get out of control. And you're speaking to a control freak, you know. I mean, you don't want, to, you don't want anything to get out of control, you know. But you know, there comes a time that sometimes we just need to Pick my word. <laughs> Let go. And cry. And hurt. And confess. And lean on. And hold. And hug. And heal. That's what God sent Christ for. To heal that malady inside of us so we could do those things without all these ostentatious preconceptions you know and being so starchy about things but in order for God's love here to be righteous He's got to have a law which dictates what that righteousness is. You've got to have a way to know when that righteousness has been violated. Therefore, the law. The Bible says right here in the verse previous, it says through the law in verse 20, through the law is what? The knowledge of sin. If we didn't have any speed limit signs on the road out here, the state trooper could never give you a speeding ticket. You could zip a hundred mile an hour. You could run people off of the road because you're going so fast. And he could never stop you and give you a ticket that would stand up in any court in the land if there were no speed limit signs on the road and nothing on the books. Because where there is no law, there is no infraction. And Paul understands the logic of what his heroes are saying, and that's where he's getting ready to carry his argument to in the next few verses. But the first thing he has to show is that the righteous judgment of God is there, the righteous law of God is there, and, but the righteous love of God is there to heal. And by the way, the righteousness of God mandates hell. 
let that one just sink in for a second. The righteous law and love of God mandates hell and the lake of fire. Else God cannot be who He says He is in this book. There must be a place of punishment. There must be. Well, that's the love of God is the righteousness of the love of God. Now you've got the love of God is costly. Look at verse 24. And understand, and I just want to kind of say this as an aside. In the Old Testament, to me, two of the biggest mountaintops are the Abrahamic covenant and Passover. Just tremendous pictures of the New Testament. Just tremendous. And these verses we're dealing with here in Romans, I could preach it to you all day long and still not even begin to scratch the surface on it. But what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to bring out some, some issues here that hopefully people have misunderstood or struggled with over their life. The love of God is righteous. We've covered that. But now the love of God is, in verse 24, costly. Read the verse. Being justified freely. It's an economic term. An accounting term. How freely? By grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Donald Gray Barnhouse gave an illustration when he was living out in the prairies of the Midwest. One of these prairie fires came over and came through his farm. And after the fire was over with, there was a big old oak tree out on the road and it was there smoldering and stuff from the fires and everything. And he saw this clump of something in the roadway there. And he was just walking along as a boy and he just kicked it. And these biddies ran out everywhere. It was a mother hen that had pulled out her wings and drawn her chicks underneath her and pulled them in tight, took her head down, and the fire killed her. But she protected her chickens. And you know something, folks? That is exactly what Jesus Christ did when God at the cross when darkness fell, I believe that's when God imputed the sin of the world onto His pure Son, Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ, because He is God, could have withstood the wrath of God because He was righteous and pure and holy. Therefore, when the blowtorch of God's wrath on sin blew down on that sacrifice, it was not consumed like the, the sacrifice that Elijah had set up. It was not like the, even the rocks and everything that was there that was totally consumed by the fire that fell from heaven. But Almighty God on His Son, because of that purity, acted just like a, a force field or a shield all over humanity, as if you could hear the words of Christ echoing from the cross, Father, Father, forbear, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in that execution of the righteous love of God, it cost God. Because God so loved, he gave. Now have you ever, I mean just, sometimes in Bible study you need to take verses one word at a time and stop and meditate. For God, not me, His initiative, not mine, not because we asked Him. We didn't want God to have any interference in our life. Amen? But God so loved, not just loved, He so loved. The elect? No. The world. Because I love, I have to act. I'm going to send my son, and I know what I'm going to do to him. 
The wage of sin is death. It needs to be reckoned. Something is out of joint in my perfect creation. And the only way it can be made right is for one that is right, Jesus, to be sacrificed. So that I can pour out my wrath and my righteousness can be satisfied. My justice can be satisfied because blood is being shed for life is in the blood. He followed every principle of the Old Testament to the T, to the jot and to the tittle. He followed every bit of it to the very last letter of the law and was found spotless. Jesus looked at the experts of magnification at the time and He said, which of you convinces me of sin? Not a syllable was mentioned. Not a syllable! God poured out His wrath on that most perfect sacrifice. And in so doing, placated and spent His wrath. And that was an act of grace, which is what the Scripture says. It, we are justified freely. What does it cost me to come to Christ? I mean, we were talking about sacrifice this morning. We are talking about what other people in other lands have to sacrifice and give up. And, and Jason was telling about this brother, R.P. or somebody, that was, um, you know, he goes to these villages and he just gets the tar beat out of him. And Jason asked him, why do you do it? He said, you know, it's what God's called me to. Why? Because he knows he's been given freedom spiritually. Freely. What do we know of sacrifice? What does it cost you as an individual? What does it cost Hales Chapel Baptist Church to be a Christian? Hello? Wake it up now. What does it cost you to be a Christian? If today it was so mandated in this land that anybody that names the name of Jesus Christ, we're going after your business, we're going after your finances, we're going after your family. If today that was the legal law of the land, because we have so run the economy into ground, we need to pilfer the people for everything they've got. Let's go after the Christians first. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying, what if God so allowed such a thing to happen in this land? Could you still come in here and sing glorify thy name in all the earth? Or would we say, God, look at what I've done for you. Why me? It's not about you. It's about God. That's the point. That's the point. That we miss, we walk by it every Sunday, oftentimes in church, and we, we miss the fact that it's about God. And he's saying, can't you see what it's cost me? You know, in Hebrews 10, it talks about if we go on sinning willfully after, it, uh, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful, terrifying expectation of judgment. And, and there was a pastor in Oklahoma, I was just trying to remember his name, that gave the illustration of a man who came home from work early one day. And he noticed these emergency vehicles were zipping past him and they were heading in the direction of his home. And, you know, they get that sinking feeling in your heart. It's like, oh, I hope it's not my place. But the closer he got, they were there. And come to find out, his son had gotten hit riding a bicycle in the street. And it killed him. And the boy's blood was all over the pavement. Well, the emergency vehicles had gone. They'd taken his son away. And he was pronounced dead on, dead on the scene. And all that sort of stuff. So he's dealing with that, and his son's blood is out in the street. And now they've moved, removed the barricades and everything, and the cars, rush hour, just zipping through his, his son's blood. Just, and he had him on the news. It's a true story. He had him on the news, and he had his coat now. He had taken off his coat from work and was standing out in the street and waving it, saying, this is my son's blood. Don't you understand? Get away from my son's blood. Don't run through my son's blood. You see, to him, that was his son. His son's blood was precious. But to the people that ran through it, it meant nothing. Because it cost them nothing. 
And I told, I, I've told the committees, I've told you, I am so sick of church that goes through the motions of church and has nothing to do with Jesus, that doesn't understand the price that God paid, that doesn't understand what it cost Him just for Him to receive the righteous uh, verdict that we would even give Him. Isn't that ironic? That a fallen creation would give a holy God a verdict of righteousness? That He so wants to vindicate Himself? I have not done anything out of order. I have not done anything contrary to my law. But everything has been done rightly. Everything has been done legally. Everything has been done with your stead in mind. And that is the God we serve. Amen? Then you can come up here and then you can worship. You know why? Because you see the price that was paid. Gosh, it paid. It paid so horribly through the veins of God to have that price paid. But look there at verse 25. The love of God's righteous. The love of God is costly. But lastly, the love of God is complete. Verse 25. Whom God hath set forth. Would you do that for somebody else? that had crossed you or not done according to your expectations or even attacked you for whatever reason. I mean, if let's say that Lee shanked me in a business deal or something. I said, Lee, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive you and I'm going to prove my forgiveness to you because I'm going to give you Elijah to kill. I wouldn't do that, brother. You know. <laughs> but how many millions of sins do we individually commit? And how many millions upon billions of people have been on the face of the earth that over and over and over God says, I look at it and I will still give because I love Let's do a little word study. If I can see the words. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, that is a satisfaction, an appeasement. Because when you break the law, now you are contrary to the state or the individual or the entity that gave that law, in this case, Almighty God. So when you've broken the law, then you have a, or God has a contention, rightly spoken, with you. And He has a righteous contention with you because the law was clearly stated. If you didn't know it in the Scriptures, you knew it in your heart. Because the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of every human being. I don't care what an atheist says. He knows right and wrong. And that sense of right and wrong is, is, is endemic to the human race. You don't have animals and plants saying, well, you know, I shouldn't do that. You can train an animal to know right or wrong, but that's from your human standpoint. You've instituted right and wrong into the mind of that animal. But you put a cat out there, if cat is going to mate with any other cat, it can get a hold of it. Same thing with a dog. An animal is going to act according to his animalistic instincts because it's an animal that has no sense of the holy. It has no sense of the spiritual. You don't see any monkeys lifting up any totem poles in the jungle. You see people lifting up totem poles of monkeys in the jungle. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. We have a sense of the spiritual. We have a spiritual dimension that nothing else in creation has. And because God has so created us, He has so capacitated or, or endued us with the ability to understand that spiritual dimension, however flawed it is, however depraved we are, 
That's what the function of the Holy Spirit does in enabling us to, to grasp those things and see where we have violated such righteous standards that He's laid before us. But this law being complete, Paul is what he is doing is he now understands, well, there was a period of time, Paul, before Moses got the law. And all of those people died. He, he's going to address that here coming up. In Romans, in the, in the chapters coming. We're not going to get to it today. But what about all those that died from Adam to Moses? They still died with the similitude of Adam's sin. Why? And Paul says, you know, the law is there to dictate what sin is. Well, what about those people, Paul? And that's what he's going to address here. He says to declare his righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. For the remission, and it's not removing of, but it's here the remission of sins, or the, for, the word really is forbearance. God put up with those people's sins until He, being God, could see into the future and as God could see the cross was coming. So God, because He knew He was going to send His Son to die for sins, now could come back to present time, which to us would be past time. I hope I'm not losing you. And say, I'm going to put up with your sin right now. You're going after Baal and Asher and all that. I'm going to put up with that right now. And I'm going to make a way that I can tolerate my holiness, okay, can tolerate that because I'm sending the Christ. And so now, in the course of that omniscience that God has and the sovereignty and greatness that He has to control things to get to that end, now, he, Paul says, and understanding this rightly, he says, through the, for the sins that are past, he's talking about from Paul's time past all the way to Adam. For the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And then he says it again, verse uh, 26. To declare, I say, at this time. Goes right back to the but now of verse 21. It says, at this time, His righteousness... That he's just in what he does. He's the justifier of man. How? Because God took the initiative to make the sacrifice between God the Son, God the Father, Holy Spirit in the middle, in intermediate and all that. And in the course of that redemptive offering, he pulls the curtain away. That's why it's so important that the Scripture says that the curtain dividing the Holy of Holies in the temple was ripped from the top, starting with God, to the bottom ending with man, and he removed that barrier to his holiness. Why? Because now anybody can come. You see, it's complete. Now it's not just a Jew. Now you can't, you know, where the ones that were sent in a court of the Gentiles outside in the tabernacle, they could only come in just so far. But now God says, I have made a way. I don't need this curtain anymore, representative of the law. The law has done its job, and now it's shown you you are in need of a Savior. Now if you would believe that what I've done with my son on the cross and at the tomb. Don't forget the tomb. I proved, he sealed the deal, so to speak, that it was all completely finished. But the death had nothing to hold Jesus with. That's why he came out of the tomb. I mean, it's like the rocks were saying. It's like trying to hold down a great big floating pier, you know, a little bit. You can't hold this underwater. Why? It's coming to the top. Jesus is coming out of the grave because there's no sin to hold him in the ground. Amen? And so God has proven clearly, and He's saying, I have done this publicly in front of all the religious elite. I have not done this in a corner. That would be Paul's arguments. I have not done this in a corner. I have done this openly and publicly amongst the greatest historians at the time, the Romans, and amongst the greatest uh, religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the lawyers, and all those guys, I've done it in front of all of you guys. None of you convinces my son of sin. None of you gives a reason. You've run at this kangaroo court to even get him here this far. But I've done it because I love you. I've allowed it to happen. Even that act. I've forbeared 
the situation. Because if that situation was not allowed to happen, we wouldn't have a doorway. And he says here in the scripture that I am just and everything I'm as if God is speaking. And you have to remember this principle. This is the Holy Spirit of God telling Paul, write this, Paul. This is as it well, it's this is God talking and saying, I am just in what I have done. Nobody can stand and accuse me of doing anything wrong. And he says, now I'm the justifier of anybody that wants to believe. And in Paul's natural, the natural thought that would come to the logical mind of anybody, the next natural thought would be, well, what function is the law? Where's the boasting of that? Don't know. It's excluded. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Because everything God is doing is predicated upon, do you believe me? Do you believe what I have done is sufficient that you could come to heaven singularly by placing your faith in this finished work of Jesus Christ that I have done amongst the Trinity to justify my actions of all that I've done so that there's no slanderous accusations against me. Do you see that? And so now the condition now is just, do you believe it? You don't have to bring a ram. You don't have to bring a lamb. You don't have to bring some offering. You don't have to be afraid because now the Scripture tells us, now look, you can come boldly. Hello. I mean, you not demanding of God. No, you keep your, you keep your right perspective. He is God and you are not. And I, we are not, right? But you can come boldly to the throne of grace now. Amen, Lee? We can come and we can ask for those things. I'm hurting here. Exactly what he said this morning. I'm hurting here, Father. Abba, Father, I know you know all things. And all things pass by your borrowed judgment. And I know you allow nothing into my life which won't help me to grow more in my faith or to glorify you or, or on and on the list goes. But Father, this hurts. This just hurts in the human realm. Can you help me? And in that, now God says, in that, you've got access to me. But the greater thing is, God can have access and communion with you. Y'all should have hit the ceiling right then. I'm going to tell you. Because if you ever get to the point where you see how much your sin separated you from a holy God, then you will understand the cost that was paid by God Himself to bring you into His presence where now you can have the right that formerly only one man in Israel had once a year on the Day of Atonement to come into the very presence of God dictated and indicated by the Shekinah glory of God over the mercy seat. Paul even mentions that here. He talks about the mercy seat here. And he says there he's using this term. When you can say propitiation, you can also put the word in there, mercy seat. Or a place that propitiates or placates or makes peace. You know what the mercy seat was in the temple? Let me tell you what it was. The Ark of the Covenant, pretty much everybody knows what that is. Four foot, roughly, four foot by two foot. Not very big at all. A couple of angels, solid gold, one piece of gold, overshadowing the mercy seat of God like this. The lid, which is actually the mercy seat, was solid gold. Two foot by four foot. And when the priest would come in, that lid inside of that box were some other items, you know... To, the man and Aaron's rod that budded, but mainly the law of God. And in that law, the Bible teaches here, Paul teaches here, that the law brings wrath. But in order to contain, now, now look at the metaphor and look at the word pictures that's there, contain the wrath of God, there was a holy representation, pure gold, not shit and wood covered with gold, which indicates the incarnation of the flesh and divinity into one, but this is pure divinity. This is pure God. And the only thing that could keep that lid on that box, so to speak, was when the priest came in and he offered the blood of an innocent 
for the guilty. And it had to hit the lid. If it missed the lid, the priest died. If he did it six times and stopped, he died. If he did it eight times, he stopped, he died. You know why? Because he was supposed to do it seven times, the number of completeness with God. You do it rightly. You do it properly. You do it as I dictate for you to do because you are walking on holy ground. And in that area of holiness, that man not only was... <laughs> I can just imagine him shaking with hyssop. He's probably splattering blood everywhere while he's walking in the air. He's like, oh God. <laughs> was it one? Was it one? It was one. <laughs> I mean, I know he wasn't. I'm sure he wasn't doing that. And I'm just making light for a moment. But it would terrify... I'm saying it would terrify me. You know what I'm saying? I mean... But you get in there, and in that process, while he is offering that, he didn't understand that there was a Christ to come because he, he couldn't have the omniscience of God. But God knew what was going on. That's what matters. God knew that I was going to be a sinner. He knew that I was going to follow the way I was born in. He knew I was going to follow right along that bent that was in me because i got a desperate heart that's desperately wicked. Who can know it? So do you. But he knew that I was going to need a Savior. I'm making a way because I so love the world. I'm going to set up a system, by the way, which was just a shadow of what really is in heaven, in which Jesus Christ, the real true high priest, entered as the high priest, as the sacrifice with his own blood and presented that at the true holy of holies after his resurrection. And there he made a reconciliation between holy God and sinful man. And now we can come boldly. Just hang out there for a minute. Now when you come to worship, let me back up to where we are here in Zebulun. A little hot in there to me. I don't like music. Preacher's too long-winded. Amen to that one, right? It's all about you, isn't it? Friend, it's about God. It's about God. We can say it. We can say amen to it. But let's this morning. We got, to, we got to split the Sunday school. But let's this morning. Let's just all do a heart check. Why do I preach? Why do you teach? Why do you go on missions? Why do you do music? Why do you evangelize? Why do you teach the faith? Why do you go to school, Corey? Why do you take the time to tell somebody? But why do you do what you do? So that you think, I mean, and honestly, it happens in Baptist churches. Hello. Happens in the pulpit. Well, if I do this, I'll gain some ground with God. Hello. I'm gaining some ground with God if I do these things, if I go through these accoutrements and stuff. I'm doing those things. I'm gaining me some spiritual leverage here with God because one day when something happens, I'm going to spend that spiritual capital. Say, God, what have I done? No, that's wrong theology. You are nothing. You're a bond slave bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You don't have a say-so in it. I don't have a say-so in it. And as such, when we come in, we're all on level ground. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. Only Christ should be glorified. And where then do the contentions happen? Because then they cease. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. We have to deal with some things. But it's not about us. It's about God. And then, and then, worship breaks loose. You know what I'm saying? Then you can, you know, the good thing about going on the mission field is you can see people, and Jason will tell you, you can see people that have been under legitimate persecution physically and in everything that you can imagine, and you see the praise come from the very pupils of their eyes, and you can see almost the throne of God. 
I mean, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically. You know I'm speaking like that. But you know, would you know that this person has been through the fire, but they're smiling through the scars. And just like Paul and Silas in the Bible's... Whoops. In the bowels... There it went. I told you it was going to happen. In the bowels of that, that Philippian jail, they sang. Amen? They sang. And in doing that, the other people were witness to, right? They certainly were. The other people were brought to Christ. Even the one that was confining Him. What do people hear in your circle of life when something comes into your life? God, I don't know why you're doing this to me. And God, I don't know. And God, I don't know. And Well, quit asking. Maybe the reason you don't know is because He don't want you to know. Because you know something? Let me tell you this. If God told me the path I was going to go down, I'd have said no. Hello, you'd have said the same thing. You laugh at me. You'd have said the same thing. Isn't that the truth? God tells you the path of suffering and stuff you're going to go through with your family, sitting there watching your children, your mama, your daddy, and all that other stuff going on. If God told you that was going to happen, no, sir. I don't want none of that. I've got to stop this thing at some point. Mama's saying, land that puppy. So, yeah, Sunday. <laughs> this is Sunday school. Welcome to Sunday school. So, anyway... But we're going to have a, a quick some Brother Keith's going to come. Thank you for, for putting up with me. But I just want you to understand that we need to have a, a review of what has gone on at that cross and what it cost God and help us then to look at our life and to see, God, where have I set myself in a position where you ought to be? Are my thoughts, are my thoughts, just my thoughts, pleasing to you? No. We need to pray. Amen? We need to pray. Brother Keith, you come. You lead us. Watch out for my chewing gum. <laughs>